Welcome back to the MMA meeting. Let's talk with the Weasel Podcast where we talk all things MMA and I hope you guys are having an amazing day. Now a lot of things going on in MMA. So UFC 241 wrapped up. The Colby Covington thing happened last time which I didn't really talk about too much. And everything that came out of these events recently is putting the sport in the right direction in my opinion. And I'm getting kind of excited about it. I mean for the longest time, you know, three, four years, whatever it was, there's been a lot of these weird fights a lot of these celebrity fights or you know fights that didn't really make sense but they were good for the business right and for instance the Nate Diaz thing where he called out Hori Mazadal it's a great call out I mean that's how you call out someone right that's how you get someone's attention and that's how you draw in people not just the style and the things he said about Hori Mazadal such as he's not a west coast gangster and stuff like that but he is another real fighter in the sport this fight does make sense I mean Nate Diaz in the welterweight division, same division as Masvidal, they were both lightweights once upon a time, and Diaz defeating Anthony Pettis, who is a great fighter in his own right, and both these guys want this kind of fight. It brings a lot of money, brings a lot of eyes, a lot of people are going to be excited about it, and it's a competitive fight, and they're both in the top 10. You couldn't ask for a more perfect fight. Now, Nate Diaz is a big draw. He showed that night. He was the biggest draw in the entire card. He had the most traffic the entire week of the fight. Of course, he probably got paid more, but he got $250,000 disclosed pay. I'm pretty sure he made a lot more in the back, right? A lot more, maybe from pay-per-view points, all sort of stuff. I don't know how that works anymore because ESPN Plus kind of changed it a little bit but i'm pretty sure he did make a lot more money than that because this show that steepy miocic made about what eight hundred thousand seven hundred something thousand disclosed pay probably got more in the back as well but i would have to think that diaz taking this fight he wouldn't just take it for a good fight i mean obviously he would have to get paid and two hundred fifty thousand doesn't seem like the kind of money he would come back for right and that Mazadal fight, if that happens, that 100% has to be a five-round fight. They both want five rounds. Fans want five rounds. Be a pay-per-view main event. It's obviously going to be on a pay-per-view. I don't think they'll put it as a fight night ever. If it's on a pay-per-view, it has to be the main event. Because I don't think a lot of people noticed. Diaz was a co-main event. What did he say in the past of the only time he'll be a co-main event? He said if he's under the heavyweight title fight. I think a lot of people forgot about that. That's the reason why I believe he was a co-main event. I think for any other case, he would want to be the main event. Maybe if John Jones fought or something like that because he does put Jones at a high level, right? He has some high praise for John Jones' skills and stuff. But I think any other person, he would never be under them. He would never be a co-main event under their show. So I would have to think, unless they're doing another title fight heavyweight main event, Nate Diaz versus Hori Maslow would have to be at the top of that card, right? And that's a bonkers fight, man. That's an amazing fight. I talked about a little bit, but, you know, Nate Diaz has the better boxing overall, I would think, but Maslow could shock a lot of people. Maslow shocking a lot of people every time he fights. The, no one no one expected him to beat Darren Till the way he did. Nobody expected him to beat Ben Askren the way he did, besides a couple of people. I did see some people on Twitter actually call it out like that, but that's always a possibility in fights. Someone just coming out with a flying knee and knocking them out. I mean, Kyle Uno, I think, tried to do the same thing to BJ Penn. It's happened plenty of times in the sport. I think in this fight, Maslow could shock a lot of people in the boxing. If not, he can actually overcome or show some superiority in the boxing exchanges. Especially because he does have a higher wrestling game. He has better kicks. He can disrupt Nate Diaz with some leg kicks. Even though Diaz is a lot better at checking leg kicks nowadays. I mean, he checked Pettis' kicks. So, what is he going to do to Mazadal? But they are in opposite stances, which is a little bit different. But I do think for a training camp, Diaz would definitely focus on leg kicks. He'll work on wrestling. He'll work in the specific boxing style of Ori Mazadal. Mazadal definitely brings in more power and a little bit more speed. But he is giving up some reach. And that's pretty much the only thing. I would say they're both great at taking a punch. And they both have a very similar defense when punches are coming their way. They both like to pull on punches, lean back far. I always say Diaz is a lot better at returning, at countering back, right? When he pulls back on punches, he likes to counter with a hook. But when Jorge Mazdal pulls back, he doesn't really come back with anything too much, right? He just pulls back and resets the fight. That can actually be a bit interesting because, you know, Mazdal can change things for this fight. He can come back at Diaz. But if he pulls back on Diaz's punches, which is actually harder to do on longer fighters, if he's not going to counter back because instinctively he doesn't normally do that, Diaz can pepper him with volume. I mean, he could throw a jab, and let's say Jorge Mazdal pulls on that punch and moves back and tries to reset the fight. Diaz is going to keep coming with punches. All right, you move on my jab, now you're getting caught by the, the left straight, almost 100%. Pull on my jab, or you pull on my left hand, now comes a right hook, and I'm keeping that on you. Now I'm going to your body, all sort of stuff. So that's one thing that can hurt Jorge Mazdal. 
But for some reason, I'm, I don't think Maslow will come in there with a traditional boxing approach. I think he's going to come in there very Muay Thai-esque. A lot more willing to throw leg kicks, a lot more willing to walk Diaz down and not really use too much head movement because when you do that, Diaz's punches don't stop, right? So if you evade one punch or two, yes, you can try to counter, but that's not really Masvidal's taste, right? So if he's walking down Diaz, that's going to be a major advantage for him because now he can throw more leg kicks, he can mix it up a little bit more, enter with jabs, confuse Diaz just a little bit because that's the one thing I was saying that Anthony Pettis had to do in that fight with Diaz. If he's going to raise his chances of winning that fight, leg kicks are going to have to be there. And he has to press forward because it has been shown that Diaz doesn't do as well backing up in every single fight against Conor McGregor, against RDA, against Benson Henderson, against so many fighters. He's completely different when he's backing up because his stuff doesn't work. Usually it doesn't work to that effect. The volume can't keep up anymore. He can't continue with combinations and stuff like that moving backwards. You're more susceptible to leg kicks. You're more susceptible to get taken to the ground, driven to the cage, all sort of stuff. And Diaz doesn't have the kind of power to get opponents off of him, especially a guy who can eat a shot like Mazadal. So it's an amazing fight. I keep going back and forth of who I think will win, but I'm sticking to what I said before. I think I'm going to go with Mazadal right now because I think he just has an overall higher chance of winning every single exchange or having more opportunities in the fight to take advantage of the situation. But it's an amazing fight, man. We really have to see how that fight plays out. And now the Stipe Miocic thing. I mean, after he defeats Daniel Cormier, how is he not the greatest heavyweight of all time? There could be a little bit of discussion, a little bit of argument there for Fedor Emelianenko. If it's not, if you're not arguing for Fedor being the greatest of all time, I really want to hear who you think it is because it's not Cain Velasquez. You know, I've watched some other people say that Cain could possibly be the greatest heavyweight of all time. Definitely not by legacy. Definitely not by title reign. Definitely not by competition, right? It's probably just how he fought. But I would say Fedor was a lot more menacing, a lot more, let's say, effective for 10 years doing what he did. You know, I've seen some people trying to say Cain Velasquez, so that's crazy, man. I don't even think Kane at this point. Uh, you can probably say Kane is number three, I would say. Probably you can argue that, but I actually think Daniel Cormier is above Kane Velasquez, right? So my heavyweight GOAT list goes Stipe's number one, Fader is number two, and then Daniel Cormier is number three. Kane can be number four. I could probably put him there. And then call me crazy, but you can actually say Francis is number five at this point because. Yes, Francis has never been uh, a champion, but that's because Stipe has been champion this whole time, pretty much. And Stipe is the greatest of all time. If Stipe wasn't there, Francis 100% would have been the champion. And he would eventually have to fight Daniel Cormier. I don't know how that fight would go. I would think Cormier would win, but you never really know if Francis is gone. But the reason why you can say Francis is number five, right behind Cain Velasquez, is because the level of competition he has beaten already is insane. It's insane. It's unlike most heavyweights. I mean, if you go down the list from Curtis Blades... Initially, Alistair Overeem, defeat Curtis Blades again, defeat Cain Velasquez, defeat Junior Santos. That's a crazy list already. If you compare that to Cain Velasquez's competition, so Cain did beat Big Nog, but Big Nog was a little bit older in his career. He did defeat Brock Lesnar, that's a good win. He did beat Bigfoot, that's a decent win. He beat JDS, that's a good win. Defeat Bigfoot again, defeat JDS again, and eventually beat Travis Brown, who was on the downhill of his career. Big Nog, Brock Lesnar, Bigfoot twice, and JDS twice. Does that compare to Francis's record of defeating Cain Velasquez, defeating JDS, Curtis Blades twice, defeating Alistair Overeem? It's comparable at least, right? So the reason why I say Stipe Miocic is the greatest heavyweight of all time, three title defense records in the UFC. I know Fedor also has three title defenses in Pride, but the level of fighter is just so different. I mean, okay, beating Big Nog in his prime and beating Mirko Krokop in his prime, very good wins, right? Especially for that era. Defeating Mark Hunt, Mark Hunt was decent back then, but I wouldn't say he was in his prime. And I wouldn't even say Mark Hunt at his prime would be at the same level as guys like Daniel Cormier, Junior Santos, Alistair Overeem, Fabrizio Verdum, you know, when they fought Stipe Miocic, Francis Ngannou. So yes, they both have three title defenses, which is the record for any organization, I believe, at least major organization for heavyweights. But the level of competition they've beaten is far different. I mean, the best guys that Fedor beat were Big Nog and Mirko Krokop. He did defeat Kevin Randleman, which is a good win. He did defeat Mark Coleman, which is decent back then. He did defeat Andre Arlovski, which is a decent win as well. But other than that, you know, those are the strongest competition he's beaten. The biggest thing for Fedor is he has a 10-year reign, and that's really the main argument for him. While Stipe had like a three and a half year reign, the biggest thing is competition. It's hard to be consistent all the time and always win, but it's possibly even harder to defeat the absolute best in the world back to back to back to back. I mean, Fedor had a lot of free show fights. He fought a lot of guys that shouldn't be in there with him, and he completely destroyed these guys. Stipe's never really had that, 
right? Stipe defeats guys like Roy Nelson and Gabriel Gonzaga earlier in his career before he was champion. He went to war with Junior Santos. Then he defeat guys like Mark Hunt. Then he defeat Mark Hunt, who was coming off the Fabrizio Verdum knockout, which he was actually winning. And before that, he was on a pretty good streak. I think he lost to JDS actually before that. But before that, he had a pretty good streak. And don't forget, he defeated Andre Arlovsky, who was coming off a six-win streak. That stride that everybody was surprised Arlovsky was on. That was the Arlovsky that Stipe beat. Defeat Fabrizio Verdum, who just became the champion. Who just submitted Cain Velasquez. That's a legit win. Defeat Alistair Overeem, who was coming off a four-win streak. Three of those by knockout. Defeat Juno Santos, who was coming off the Ben Rothwell win, but he wasn't really on a big streak. He was trading wins and losses by then. Definitely not in his prime. He defeat Francis Ngannou, who tore through the heavyweight division. He loses to DC, and then he goes and defeats DC. So, I would say Stipe is the greatest of all time. You can make an argument for Fedor... But everybody else is not on their level. In my criteria, level of competition, the skills, and being consistent are the biggest things for a fighter to be one of the greatest of all time. I think competition is probably the highest up there. If you could beat the best fighters, nothing else can discredit you, right? You beat the best guys. Doesn't matter how you fight. Doesn't matter what people think about your style. If you beat the best guys, you beat the best guys for a reason. And nobody has beaten the best guys better than Stipe Miocic, you know? And now they can run it back with DC, a rubber match to see who is actually the best of this generation. I always say DC, you know, is the third best in my criteria. Some people put him below Cain Velasquez, whatever. Stipe versus DC3 is a big fight. It's a competitive fight. Both their fights were quite competitive up until the finish. But the only thing is Francis Ngannou is as much of a number one contender as you can get besides maybe Tony Ferguson. The fact that Tony Ferguson is still a number one contender and still isn't fighting for the undisputed belt is insane. That should not happen, man. In any organization, in any division ever, in any combat sport, in any sport, what's happening to Tony Ferguson should never happen. This is crazy. But besides him, Ngannou is like the next most deserving contender for a title shot. I mean, who is left to beat? He beat everybody. He could fight, you know, Derek Lewis again and right that wrong and actually put on a performance. I think he destroys Derek Lewis if he's in the right state of mind. But that's the only thing, right? That's the only thing going against a DC Stipe rubber match. But I know they would like to do it. I know the organization loves Daniel Cormier. I know the fans love Daniel Cormier. I know a lot of people want to see that fight again. One and one both finish each other. But then Ngannou would have to fight again. And I know DC is going to take some time off. I mean, he took some punishment at the end of that fight there. And I know Stipe wants to take some time off himself. I don't know. I don't know what to do. I personally want to see Ngannou versus Stipe. But I am definitely not mad at DC versus Stipe 3. And now one other thing about Colby Covington. Now, I want to say something about that. You know, the performance he put on was absolutely beautiful. I mean, it was amazing. A lot of people didn't think Colby was much. And he shut a lot of people down. He shut most people down to think that he's not that level of fighter. He's not a championship level fighter. He 100% is. Right, and he confirmed it, and he confirmed it, right? He should be up for a title shot next, as Mazdal versus Nate, Nate Diaz probably will happen. But I still see a lot of people mad at Colby Covington. I mean, it works, though. It's good for him that people are mad at him. You know, when I see people mad at him, part of me is like, why are you guys hating on him, right? Do you not understand what he's doing here? And the other part is, you know what? I'm kind of happy they're mad at him. I don't want to really say anything because it works to Colby's benefit. And when he came to sit down at UFC 241 and everybody was booing him to the point where I think it was Derek Bronson and Ian Heinish thought that they were getting booed and Heinish actually asked his corner, why are they booing? It was actually because Colby came in the, in the arena, which is crazy. I've never heard that. I've been to one UFC event. I don't know if anybody's ever been to a UFC event where everybody was booing during a fight because someone came to sit down. Colby is polarizing. Came in with a championship belt, make America great again hat, the whole gimmick, the whole character, and everybody is in it. People are hating on it. People are loving it. People are having fun watching it. I'm definitely one of those people that are just sitting back and watching this because it's hilarious. The kind of reaction it draws from people and you have to give him credit. I mean, he's broken down perfectly. He had to do this kind of character because nobody was paying attention to him. And I think I've heard that he was going to get cut and that's when he turned heel, right? He had to do something. He had to get some eyes on him. He had to get people talk about him. And Chilson did the exact same thing. Chilson was very quiet. He never talked until he had to, until he had to get some eyes on him because his style wasn't doing it. His style wasn't the most exciting. Colby's style isn't the most exciting. Now it is a lot more exciting than before. But if your fighting style is not going to get people to pay to watch you, maybe emotionally you can get to them, right? Maybe you can get into the fans' heads, into buying your fights, watching your fights. The numbers weren't too great, 
I think because of the time slot they were in, but definitely getting more numbers than he ever did before. If he kept that same thing where he was kind of boring personality and coming into wrestling guys and grinding the fights out, the numbers would be a lot less. You'd get paid a lot less. I think for the Lawler fight, he got $100,000, 4545 and then 10000 for incentive pay. I've heard someone say, I think it might have been Brandon Shaw that said that interim champions don't get more money when he was alluding to Colby Covington. That is factually wrong. You can check it up yourself. I mean, when Colby won the interim belt against RDA, he got $350,000 to show. $30,000 incentive pay. So he got $380,000 for that fight. $350,000 to show for an interim championship fight. Before that, he fought Damian Maya. He got 39 and 39. After he was interim champion, they stripped his title. 45 and 45. I think $45,000 to show and $39,000 to show is a little bit different than $350,000 to show when you're fighting for the interim champion belt. I don't want to get into it, but you know that guy says a lot of crazy stuff that he should know about. But when people are saying that the interim championship doesn't mean anything, it means more money. You always get more money when you're interim champion. You get championship pay. So that's why it matters. You know, It also tracks a little bit of the casual fan sphere. Casual fans aren't gravitated too much to championships anymore like they used to because they've been watered down, but they still matter because it will draw in at least a little bit. A little bit matters. So let's say you're getting 10,000 of the casual fans to buy your pay-per-view. That's actually a lot of money, right? And the fighters that are fighting in that championship bout are getting more money as well, right? $350,000. That's a huge jump, a huge raise from what he was getting before and after. And I see something here with Conor McGregor. So the whole thing with Conor punching that, I guess he's a 50-year-old man or 40-something-year-old man. He's not old, old. He looked way older than his age, probably in that pub a little bit too much. So I'm glad to see that Conor is at least admitting that he did something wrong, that he shouldn't have done that. He's taking responsibility for it. The people that were defending him were crazy, man. Even Conor knows it was in the wrong. If Conor is saying he was wrong for it, how are his fanboys saying that he wasn't? Like, crazy, man, crazy. Some people that were coming at me at Twitter was absolutely insane to defend this. I like to argue, I like to debate all the time, but it was just getting so silly. But yeah, Connor's saying he's in the wrong. He's taking responsibility for it. He shouldn't have done that. He's learning from it. He's trying to get better from that. It happened in April, and he's saying since that, he's taking the time to be better, to do better things, to better himself, all sort of stuff, which is great to hear. You know, I believe in people changing themselves. You know, I give people second chances, third chances, whatever. If you change yourself eventually and you actually prove it, I'm all for it, right? I don't know if this is going to change, though. That's the only thing. You know, Connor's done crazy stuff before. He's apologized for crazy stuff before, and he does another crazy thing. So Connor would have to convince people, really, to show that he is different, he is a better person, all sort of stuff. I'm not buying it yet. Hopefully, you know, hopefully he comes back and fights. Hopefully he betters himself, doesn't punch people in bars and stuff like that. Yeah, but wait, they have it on YouTube already? Several hours ago? How did I miss this? I saw the script that Ariel Hawani posted. I didn't really see the video. I wonder if we can see this together. And there's other segments as well, eager to return to UFC, all sort of stuff. The whole interview is like 41 minutes. That's crazy. Yeah, no way we can watch all that. All right, we're going to watch it really quick. Could you tell us your side of that story? What happened there? Um, I mean, in reality, it doesn't matter what happened there. I was in the wrong. That man, that man deserved to enjoy his time in the pub without having, having it to end the way it did. And, and although five months ago it was and I tried to make amends and I made amends back then it's still the fans don't even that does not even matter I, I was in the wrong and um, I must come here before you and, and take accountability and take responsibility and I owe it to to the people that have been supporting me I owe, I owe it to my mother my father my family and um, I owe it I owe it to the people who trained me in martial arts that's not that's not who I am that's not the reason that's not the reason why I got into martial arts or, or, or studying combat sport. The reason I got into it was to defend against that type of scenario. So to see that, um, and although, although months ago when I have been making steps and continually making steps to do better and be better, to see it, um, it's like a dagger into, into my heart as a young martial artist. So I'm just, I'm just here to own up, up to that and, and, and move on and, and carry on and, and, and face what's coming with, with it. The video is a little grainy. Did you, in fact, punch that man? Uh, look, in respect to the whole entire situation, I'm just we'll, we'll, we'll let it play out with, with, with what happens in, 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 in with what happens with it. So, okay, what happened was a little hazy for me, also. And okay, something up with Connor? He's starting a lot. Looks like he's very anxious. Like something's wrong with him. Stuttering. Doesn't look too confident talking like he usually does. His eyes are a little puffy and stuff. You know, maybe he's tired, but huh? 
Um, it was many months ago, like I said, and I have been making amends to, to, to make it not happen again and to be better, to be a better father, to be a better human, to be a better role model to these kids. I know a lot of kids are looking up to me and sometimes it does be, sometimes it kind of takes me back, but I have to realize that, I, that that's not the, that's not, that's not the attitude or the behavior of a leader, of a martial artist, of a champion. So I must get my head screwed on and just get back in the game and fight for redemption, retribution, respect, the things that made me the man I am, and that's what I will do. Could I ask what sparked that incident? I mean, we see the video, we don't hear anything. Could you tell us your side of the story from mm. what you recall? Again, look, look, what, what could I say? What, what, it does not matter. What, I, there's no answer to what, 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 what was done. I was completely in the wrong, so there's no, there's no need to even discuss what, what began it, what was going on outside, inside, any of that. I was completely in the wrong. It was unacceptable behavior, and I accept that. And, and like I said, I've made amends, and I'm continuing to make amends, and I will continue to do so. All right, I like hearing that from Connor. The fact that he said it doesn't really matter what happened. He was completely in the wrong no matter what occurred there. I'm happy to hear him say that because Connor is used to twisting things into his own narrative, right? He makes his own narrative out of stories, and a lot of people gravitate towards that instead of the actual truth many times. And he's not doing that here, so it's a little bit different now. But still, there's something up with Connor. There's something up with him. It's like, it's either he's putting on this front because he knows maybe his business is in trouble after that incident, and maybe stores aren't going to sell his drink anymore, or as much because of this. And it's all like a business ploy here to revamp everything, get back into the sport, and do things right again. Or it's the opposite, where it kind of looks like he's asking for help, but not asking for, like, not asking for help. It's like inside he's reaching out for help. You know what I'm saying? And so right now with that situation, as you mentioned, this happened back in April, but the video gets released last week. Where do things stand with it right now? Um, I mean, I'm just, look, it got released the day after my daughter's christening, so we had such a great time with, the fa with my family, and then, you know, it's just, I just have to wait and see what happens, and whatever comes my way, I will face it. Whatever comes my way, I deserve it, you know? So I will face this head on, I will not hide from it. I was in the wrong. It was completely unacceptable behavior for a man in my position. What happens, I will face. Connor, since this video came out, as you probably know, you have been criticized heavily from the fans to UFC president Dana White, fellow fighters. What is it like for you to read this, to hear this stuff? Because it does seem like some of these people who are so loyal to you for so many years are starting mm -hmm. to turn on you a little bit, that they're starting to lose mm. patience after mm. seeing all these incidents. Mm. What is that like for you to read that stuff and hear that stuff? Mm. Well, as far as like my fellow colleagues, I deserve to be called out on it. I deserve to be called out on that behavior. It's just unacceptable. There's no, there's no excuse to it. I deserve everything that comes my way with it. So, and as far as like the fans and seeing the fans disappointed in me, it hurts me so much because I am a fan. Everything I've done is for the fans. I'm a fan favorite fighter. My whole in entire career has been based for the fans. Like uh, never pulling out, never, never, never turning down uh, weights, sport rules, anything. I always done it all to light the game up for the fans and to create fanfare and to see them disappointed in me, it hurts me to my soul more than you'll ever know. So, like I said, retribution, redemption, respect. I will come and I, 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 I will regain all of those. This incident happened just a few weeks after that incident in Miami where the fan tried to take a photo of you and, and you knocked out uh, the phone out of his hands. And so I'm, I'm wondering... Yeah, and again, there's more. There's something not right about Conor McGregor here. And I can't really put my finger on it. It's almost like he feels that he's getting pulled back. He feels that he's getting left back. That's what I'm getting from this a little bit. Maybe he's seen the Nate Diaz fight. Maybe he's seen everybody progress in the sport. And he's kind of just sitting back, punching people in bars and smashing people's phones and not being productive in the fight game, which is something that he started with. That's who he is. He is a fighter at heart. So, I don't know, it just seems like maybe he feels left behind now and he has to make huge strides to get back to where he was. But there's more there, man. There's more there. Do you believe that you have an anger problem? Is this something that you need to fix? Mm. Um, you know, that was, a, that was another situation a long time ago. I seem to be getting into, uh, f I get into great spaces and great 
uh, like in that Miami trip, I was prepared for. I was preparing for battle. I brought my mother out. It was her 60th birthday. I brought the whole family out. We went out, and then a situation arose. I need to just stop reacting to the bait. I'm, I, I, I got to ask. Like people are trying to bait me into things. Am, am I the fish or am I the whale? I must. I must be calm. I must be zen. I must be. I must lead by example. This. There's so many people looking up to me. What? what how can I? How can I react in this way? I need. I need to get a hold of this. And I'm. Like I said, I'm working very hard to do this and I'm taking the necessary steps and I have been on a, a great trajectory and even before the Miami incident I was on a great trajectory and then I had a little slip and then I back up and I'm just trying my hardest Ariel I, I, I swear on my life I'm trying my hardest and it's it's been what five months since that one and um, that's it I just I just have to I just have to take what comes and and, and, and move on could you learn from every single experience in my life and try and do right for the people that want me to do right. I know you, Ariel, you want me to do right. My, my mother wants me to do right. My, my mother wants me to do right. My father, my fans, the people that... I want to give them a reason to back me, but how can they back certain situations? So I must understand that and, and grow as a man and, and make amends. Yeah, more evident in this that I was just saying before. Looks like he's left behind. Looks like he's trying to get his way back. But when you try to make your way back, it's usually not super difficult to that extent. The way Connor is saying here, Connor's saying that he's trying. He's trying to get back. He's trying to make amends with all this stuff. And when you say you're trying, it means it's difficult. It means it's very difficult for him to do it. And that most likely means a lot of things are in the way. A lot of things are distracting him. And those are the things that are really difficult of throwing aside on the path he's going on. Whatever those distractions are, whatever those things are that he has to throw aside from the road, whatever that is, that seems to be what's holding him back. Could you tell us your side of that story? In Miami, we haven't heard you talk about it. And where do things stand now as far as that incident is concerned? That, that incident has been completely handled. The fan, if you want to call, you know, it does not matter. Again, it does not matter what, what, what the person says or how the situation arose. It does not matter. I was in the wrong and that's handled and in the past. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy now to keep moving forward and keep striving forward and focus on the positive. Like if you ask me about Miami and the heckler in, in Miami, I would rather focus on the occasion with my family. That was an unforgettable moment to bring my mother out for her 60th birthday, you know. I'm trying to focus on all the good in my life and, and recognize that I do make mistakes and, and, and learn from them not to make them again, but still focus on the good and, 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 and please, Lord, allow more of it to, to, to happen for me. Yeah, man, it just seems like Connor just needs help or wants help. It's difficult what he's trying to do. He's trying to come back. He's trying to make it back to where he was in life, in his career. It seems like he said he's disappointing his family or he's trying to prove to his family that he's trying to make it better. Those are some words that a lot of people have heard in their life from family members, from friends, whenever things are going wrong in their life or they turn to the wrong things. You hear that stuff, man, from them. You hear very similar words that Connor just spoke there. Whether it be going with the wrong crowd, whether it be drugs, whether it be career sabotage or life sabotage, whatever it is, that is usually what you hear from those kind of people. And that's what I'm getting from Conor McGregor here. If I'm going to be honest, I do believe him. I do believe that he's trying to make it better. But Conor is very sly. He's usually very slick. And a lot of people say Conor is just putting on a front here, baiting in as many people as possible so he can jumpstart his MMA career again, as well as get his whiskey business on the right track from this incident at the pub. Now that can absolutely be true. You guys can absolutely be right, the people that are saying that. But Connor is not really talking confident, right? He looks very anxious. He looks very bothered. He looks like he wants help. He really does. Legitimately looks like he wants help, but he's just not really saying it, right? And he's not spinning narratives. He's not trying to make things go by his way. He's not trying to make things cater to him. He's just letting things be. He's trying to just say, I'm just trying to move forward here. He could have obviously said that he didn't punch the guy. He threw the drink in his face. He could have obviously said that if he went to spin into his narrative. It's a very straight path to do that, but he didn't take that path. So when he first said that, that's what really told me that, you know, he's probably genuine here. I would love to watch uh, the other part. Connor is eager to return to UFC, but I don't want to take up too much time on the podcast unless you guys want to. I mean, if you guys want this kind of thing to go on more on podcasts where something big happens in the news or some big interview and we can watch it together and then break it down together a little bit. So I hope Connor gets help. If he really wants help and needs help, I hope he gets the help. I hope he turns things around. I'm a huge support in people who are trying to turn their lives around or trying to make things better or having these genuine second chances, third chances, whatever. If they're trying to make amends of being a better person, I am all for it, no matter who you are. But for Conor McGregor, it needs to be a little bit more convincing, I think. And what about Ariel Hawani here? Ariel does seem like the the normie ESPN reporters here. I mean, the way he's interviewing Conor, it's a little bit robotic. 
It's not his usual style. He's a little bit more enthusiastic or shows a little bit more personality in his old interviews, but this one, I think they just told him not to do that. I think they just told him, you know, be very normal and formal and take that approach, which I don't like that, man. That's the reason why I don't watch anybody else on ESPN. I don't want, I don't even know anybody besides I think Stephen A. Smith is on there. And the only reason why people watch Stephen A. Smith so much is because he's a super personality. I mean, he is not formal. <laughs> he just goes off and people like that. We need to see Earl Hawani do his old stuff. Don't change too much, man. I'm looking at some of the comments here on that other video. Some guy says that Connor used to be a great orator and was very witty and confident. It's all gone. The money has not made him happy. Money gets to people's head. A lot of celebrities, you know, the money and the fame ruin their lives. And you just got to be ready for it. It's a plan. You can't just jump into that lifestyle all of a sudden, you know. And he's a fighter. That's another thing, too. Connor is a fighter. Fighters normally don't do very well outside of the fight game, right? Floyd is probably the only one that comes to the top of my head that is doing pretty well, but he's still kind of in the fight game. He has a gym. He has his own promotions. Connor hasn't been doing anything in the fight game, really. Just whiskey business and stuff, and that's not his That's not his true nature, you know what I'm saying? And it's just going to drive him crazy if he sticks to that. So, yeah, but definitely there's something wrong with Conor McGregor. You know, his eyes are puffy, a little bit red, the way he's talking, just not confident, anxious, stuttering. I don't want to say what I want to say, but I think you guys probably know what I'm thinking. So let's move on now. <laughs> and now let's get to the questions. I know there's a lot of questions. Okay, we're going to start with Sammy J. The most likes on YouTube. Will it be true or false by the end of 2020? Habib will be undefeated. I will say true. Jones will be undefeated. I'll say false. Uh, end of 2020, so end of next year. I would say 100% 2021. By that time, he will lose eventually. I don't know by the end of 2020. That's hard. I'll say true just for fun. <laughs> Ngannou is a champion at heavyweight. I'll say true. Connor fights at least once more in UFC. True. Bellator 1 is a serious competition to the UFC. I'll say false. I think it takes a little bit more time. 1 is big though. I think 1 is actually bigger than Bellator. Someone becomes a triple champion in the UFC or Bellator. False. Artem is still undefeated at bare knuckle boxing. True. I'll go true, man. Artem's the GOAT. And he's actually showing at bare knuckle. Where he kind of limits himself. He doesn't have to kick or wrestle or show his world-class Brazilian jiu-jitsu. When he limits himself to just bare knuckle boxing, he doesn't try to connect you full power, but he lets off a little bit more of his technique now, you know? Then we go to Nathan Cambrook. Who wins the following? Ferguson versus Masvidal. That's a good fight. I'll go with Ferguson, though. At 155, I'll go Ferguson. I think the reach is a little bit too much. I think he'll cash Masvidal at unexpected moments. Even uh, Stephen Thompson gave Masvidal a little bit of trouble with the reach, or at least with the distance that he was fighting with. And Ferguson is going to put the pressure, constant volume, unorthodox striking that Maswell has never seen before and I think it will disrupt him a bit. Ferguson versus Diaz. Ferguson all day. All day. He's a better version of Diaz pretty much. Diaz versus Masvidal. Kind of went into it. I think Masvidal right now but it can go either way. Habib versus Colby. 170 I guess or 165 or whatever. I'll go with Habib because he does have the submission threat. He's a lot better on the ground. I think he's actually a more technical striker overall even though Colby is comparable. I think Colby is probably better offense than Habib. Habib is better defense. But I think where the fight changes is if it gets to the ground, Habib would eventually probably submit Colby or get the better of him. And then we go to Eric Justan. Which male fighter in the UFC do you think has slayed... Oh my god. Has slayed the most. I have no idea. <laughs> it could be any of them. Connor probably? I don't know. Then we go to Mr. WM117 or MRWM117. How do I repair my broken relationship with my father? An inappropriate joke just came to my head, but I don't know. Just say it's your fault. There you go. Just tell him it's all your fault. Everything that happened that broke the relationship, it was your fault. See how he reacts. If he comes back, great. If he doesn't, just send over Jeff Monson. I don't mean to like beat him up or something. Jeff Monson actually has a master's degree in psychology, so... You know, he's a big, scary guy, but he possibly has many ways of working this out. No, I'm just kidding. Do not do that. It's actually amazing how educated MMA fighters are. I mean, you got doctors, you got multiple people with master degrees. So many people graduated from college. It's kind of insane. Like Rosie Sexton, her education is crazy. I mean, you would never think she would actually be an MMA fighter for so long. Now I know for sure. If there's a comment that actually has the most likes and it's lower in the comment section, it's always one of those insult questions. So, Pan Padak with 244 likes, which is actually a lot. Would you eat... Okay, viewer discretion is advised. Would you eat Nganu's ass and get punched by Shevchenko or eat Shevchenko's ass and get punched by Nganu? Why would I put myself in this situation? I'll take the I'll take the latter. How long would I be out for? Nganu put me out for a bit, but 
how long? You know, can I come back and continue? That's the only thing. I'm sorry. Then we go to the Phantom's Threat. You guys are hilarious with these questions. The Weasel versus Top 15. What division would you compete in? Come on, man. Well, 145, definitely. But eventually go up to 155, probably 170 in the future. Right now, I weigh like 171, 172. But I am only 24 years old, so pretty big 145-er. Eventually go up to 155, be a decent size there as I gain more weight. Uh, top 15, I'll get thrashed, right? I'll just say it. So then we go to yes. What champions are most likely to lose their belts in the next 12 months? Okay, interesting question. I get this sometimes, you know. I got this last year. So middle of 2019 into the middle of 2020. I think Stipe loses his title. I think Jones keeps it. I think Whitaker keeps it, logically, but I have a gut feeling he'll lose it. I don't know why. I don't think he'll lose to anybody, but something tells me he's going to get caught. He's taking a lot of damage from Romero, man, and it might catch up to him. Kamaru Usman, I think he actually keeps it. I think when he fights Ponsonibio, that's probably when he loses it. Habib will keep it. Max Holloway will lose it. Henry Cejudo at Bantamweight, I think at Bantamweight he'll lose it, and at Flyweight he'll keep it. It's very hard to sustain a championship belt at a higher weight class. It really is. You could do a one-two fight win streak there, you know, get the belt, get a one title defense win, and then as the competition keeps growing and they focus on your style and use their size against you, and eventually it just seems very hard to hold that belt at a higher weight class. You know, get a couple wins early on, easier, holding it very difficult. And then Amanda Nunes, 145, she'll keep it. 135, she'll keep it. Valentina Shevchenko will keep it forever. Whenever she wants to lose it, she'll lose it. Jessica Andrade, I think, would actually lose it. So interesting question. And then we go to return tongues. Okay, these are top 15. These are the longest questions. Um, I get them sometimes. So whenever I get these questions now, I'm going to go right through them quickly. So style bender versus top 15 light heavyweights. And for this one, because there's three different guys, I'm going to try and not show the visuals so I can get this out quicker, you know, because, you know, doing the visuals for the top 15 versus a specific fighter, it literally takes me more than everything else to do on the podcast. So, all right, so I'm going to go through it really quickly. I'm just going to show the rankings on the side. I'm not going to do the check marks. The check marks take forever. So Stylebender versus top 15 light heavyweights. So he beats Misha Sarkinov. He beats Shogun. He beats Krylov. He beats Latifi Easy against Walker. I think Walker beats him. I think a little bit too much firepower. I think the size is a little bit too much. I don't think Adesanya has the knockout power to get Walker off of him or discourage him. Alexander Rakic, for now, I'll go with Adesanya. Rakic can win that because of his firepower and a very similar thing why Johnny Walker would beat him. But I think he's a little bit more open for shots. Glover Teixeira gets destroyed. Volkan Usmir cannot strike with Adesanya. Corey Anderson could be a tough fight for Adesanya, but I think Adesanya's take defense is really good, so he could stop that and destroy him on the feet. Alexander Gustafsson now, I think, will lose. Jan Blachowicz, I think, loses. Dominic Reyes gives some trouble on the feet, but I think ultimately loses to the experience. Anthony Smith loses. Thiago Santos loses. Daniel Cormier, I think, beats Adesanya. And I think John Jones dominates Adesanya beyond belief. Now, Frankie Edgar at bantamweight against Thomas Almeida, defeats him, defeats Uriah Faber, right now defeats Song Yadong, defeats John Dotson, defeats Rob Font, defeats Cody Stamen, defeats Jimmy Rivera. Hard fight with Cody Garbrandt. If Cody Garbrandt's in the right state of mind, he will beat Frankie Edgar. But if not, if he makes some risky choices, which he does have pretty low fight IQ whenever he gets tagged, I would say Frankie Edgar. But I'll go Frankie on the safe side. I think Dominic Cruz beats Frankie Edgar. Frankie Edgar beats Munoz, beats a Sun Sao in a very, very competitive fight, beats Jan. Hard fight with Corey Sanhagen. I would say Sanhagen wins that one. I think scrambles a little bit too much if it gets to the ground. Striking completely goes on Sanhagen's side. Aljamain Sterling would be a very competitive fight. And I think that's the fight they want to do. I'll go with Aljamain Sterling on that one. I think his striking has evolved a lot. Or his submissions are very dangerous. And his distance management is something Edgar's going to have a very hard time with. Mahler Moraes beats Frankie Edgar. And Henry Sudo beats Frankie Edgar as well. And then John Jones at heavyweight. He beats Sakai, beats Tibora, beats Toivasa, beats Olenek, beats Harris, beats Ivana, beats Shamil. Right now beats Kane. Has a hard fight with Overeem. That's a very hard fight. Because he's not going to take down Overeem easy. Even on the ground, Overeem's a threat. If Jones has power at heavyweight, he can probably knock out Overeem. But Overeem has more power. And he has very dangerous precision with his punches. A lot more experience in that realm as well. And the huge thing that can turn the fight into Overeem's favor is if he gives Jones some problems on the feet and forces Jones to go into the clinch because whenever Jones does have problems on the feet, he will tie up with his opponent. Jones is not going to be Overeem in the clinch. 
It's just not going to happen. Very dangerous stylistic matchup for Jones in that one. I'll lean John Jones, but that is not an easy fight. Volkov gets taken down and destroyed. Derek Lewis gets taken down and destroyed. Curtis Blades is a hard fight, but I would say Jones wins with the striking. Prime JDS, I would say Prime JDS, but now I'll go with uh, John Jones. Francis Agano, I think, beats John Jones. Daniel Cormier loses. Stipe. That's a tough fight. I'll go John Jones, but I think it's a very competitive fight. It would be an honor for you to answer my question. By the way, big fan of the content, so keep it up. Thank you so much, man. Then we go to Avant Campbell. How do these fights play out? Gold Artem versus Charlie Zilnov, who's 304 and oh, I don't know, man. I don't think our planet could take that kind of impact. Adesanya versus Costa. I would say Adesanya. We've seen Costa get rocked by Uri Hall on his way in. Adesanya's a different kind of striker, man. I think Costa will hit air a lot of times in that fight, but Adesanya has shown to be a little bit vulnerable. Not vulnerable, but a little bit more discouraged when he's heavily pressured. And Costa will thrive in that. Habib versus Nate Diaz at welterweight. Are you serious? Habib easily beats Nate Diaz. That's not competitive at all. Corey Sanhagen versus Cejudo. That's a really good fight. I will go Cejudo because of his pressure and his ability to adapt in fights. Maybe has trouble early on, but then eventually figures out Sanhagen. Sanhagen has also never been in five rounds. And the wrestling is a different kind of thing Sanhagen's ever fought against before. So I'll lean Cejudo. Covington versus Habib. Like I said before, I think Habib. I personally think Colby will put a pace on Habib that he's never experienced before. Plus the collegiate wrestling style that Colby has with wrist riding, etc. I think would do really well. I think so too. I think his wrestling would do very well. I think he would actually take down Habib. And Habib would actually have a harder time taking down Colby. But once it gets to the ground, Habib is a different level of grappler. I haven't made a breakdown on it yet, but Luke Thomas, shout out to Luke Thomas. He actually pointed out something 100% true. And it's something why I was saying for a while that Kamar Usman would defeat Colby Covington. And that is Colby is not a super active wrestler in terms of throwing strikes or even submission attempts, all sort of stuff. His output really happens on the feet and on the ground. It's a lot more grappling and wrestling based. Habib will, I think I'll shine that. Try to grapple with Habib on the ground. It's a different kind of thing. Abel Trujillo took down Habib. And Habib easily put him in a triangle choke and easily swept him. Habib is not just a wrestler. He's not just a sambo fighter, all that stuff. High-level jiu-jitsu, high-level judo. But he really shows it because he doesn't really have to. Then we go to Dino Bakic. Bakic? I know I pronounced that wrong. Number one, what are your thoughts on DC eye-poking Stipe in the fight and Herb Dean doing nothing about it? Ah, oh, man. Herb Dean's getting worse, isn't he? It's just objective. I mean, he's just not doing that great lately he's always been known as the greatest but whenever we say a ref is like the best ref they always start doing bad i don't know what it is i mean there was a time where mario yamasaki was actually regarded as a really good ref and then he just he just went full gladiator mode in the coliseum and just allowed whatever happened to happen yeah i don't know what herb team's doing that eye poke was pretty blatant the other one i think was a jab but the first one was definitely a poke in the eye and herb Dean just didn't see it most refs see that he just doesn't see it anymore so what i think should happen is Allow Herb Dean to start refereeing more of the smaller fights, not always the main events. I've seen it for a long time. Mark Goddard, I think, is the best ref in the business. And I've said that for a few years now. Extremely assertive, and because of that, he's very focused. He's always on edge to see what's going on, when to stop fights, when not to. He's very good at that. He, of course, will make some mistakes. All refs do. But I think let Mark Goddard start to ref these bigger fights, I think. And let Herb Dean step down a little bit for now. Because he's always in these high-profile fights. Probably a lot of pressure on him. You saw a lot recently in some of the big pay-per-views. So let him step down a little bit. Give some other refs a little bit more experience of refing these uh, bigger fights. And then return Herb Dean back up when he starts fixing his mistakes. Number two, Stephen Miocic versus Prime Fedor. I say Prime Fedor wins. But... Tough fight, right? The boxing is something Fedor's never fought against before. And Stipe has a good chin. Fedor will definitely go for the takedown. If it gets in the clinch, Miocic is going to have some trouble there, you know? And if it gets to the ground, Fedor is gonna probably going to submit Miocic. If he gets on top of Miocic, get ready for some of the most vicious ground and pound you'll ever see in your life. Go back and watch Prime Fedor in Pride. Watch his ground and pound. What did he do to Big Nog in his guard? Thrashed and bashed his face in. That was shocking, man. I'll go with Prime Fedor, though. Number three, Nate Diaz versus Hori Masvidal. Uh, I kind of already talked about it. And then, love the videos, keep them up. Thank you so much, man. This one has second most likes, but so far down in the comment section, I just saw it. Terry Spencer's with 222 likes. And I know what kind of question it's going to be. Would you rather get a one-on-one -on -one coaching lesson from any MMA coach for a day or have a threesome with Paige and Sam Michelle Watterson? How long is the coaching lesson? Can I pick as long as I want in the whole day? Because no matter what, the threesome is only going to last so long, right? But a day of coaching with any MMA coach? Yeah, I'll go with that, man. Then we go to The Critic. 
if Tony Ferguson storms Area 51, will he get a title shot? Dude, if he's the first one to discover aliens, he's not going to get a title shot. He can go to Japan and defeat Godzilla, and he still won't get a title shot. He can discover the cure to cancer, give it out freely to everybody who needs it, and he still won't get a title shot. Tony Ferguson, we'll just say at this point, you'll never get a title shot. Then we go to Curious Carrot. If Diaz beats Pettis, do you think the UFC will do Nate versus Connor for the 165-pound belt? No. Uh, Dana seems very keen on not doing that. I would love to see it, obviously. I think it's a very competitive fight like before, but I, I just don't think the UFC would do it. Who wins? Romero versus Walker at 205. I'll say Walker. He's a lot bigger. Very fast. Also very unpredictable. Nobody would know how this fight would go. But I think Romero, if he gets pressured too much like he did against Paul Coza, he'll show a little bit of that wild side to him, and I think he'll get caught by Walker. Cruz versus Aldo at 145. Aldo destroys Cruz. Destroys Cruz. This was a long time anticipated fight before. People will think, how would Cruz do against Aldo? He is not taking down Aldo. He's going to strike with Aldo. His legs are going to get battered. There's no checking from Cruz either. So, yeah. Aldo can go ham on that leg. And if Cruz tries to enter on him with some of that pivoting and switching and changing of directions and stuff like that, Aldo has the best pivot in the game. He can pivot on your punch, especially those straight punches that Cruz throws, and come on the other side with a left hook, man. Aldo is very fast. Triple C versus top 10 featherweights. I don't really have to go too much into it. I just think that Triple C will have a hard time against almost all of them. I think he's just way too small. I mean, it's just too much at that point. I mean, we're talking about guys who cut down from like 180s, 170s to fight a guy who weighs like 150. And most of these guys have insane takedown defense. So he's going to strike with them for the most part. These guys are mostly strikers or very powerful on the feet. So yeah, it's tough up there for Triple C. Then we go to Oaktown fighting. Is Tony Ferguson still in his physical prime at 36? I don't think so. Um, especially with the surgeries and all that stuff. Nah. If he never had the surgeries, I still say no. Nobody's at their physical prime at 36. Nobody is. Maybe mentally, maybe technically, but physically, nah. I think Ferguson is actually getting better, but not physically. Second side, do you think Jeffrey Epstein... Oh, okay, this is a very different question. Do you think Jeffrey Epstein got murdered, or do you think it was a committed suicide? 73 likes, really. I didn't look too much into it, but when I look at the situation, now I am a psychology major. I don't know how much that would mean in this, but what I do know about it, it's very strange. He had that kind of a cellmate. He was on suicide watch up until his death, right? They took him off on the same day I think he died, if I'm not mistaken. Again, some of you probably know a lot more about this than I do. And that happened. He had a lot of connection with a lot of powerful people, uh, Donald Trump, Bill Clinton, all sort of people, right? And the things he was imprisoned for, things he was accused of, things he was charged for, all that stuff is really out there. So maybe he probably knew he didn't have much longer. Maybe he got paid to get murdered. I personally think it was a committed suicide. Everything he's accused of, knowing he probably has no way out of this, after some time trying to find a way to get out of this, probably found no exit. And knowing his past, when he goes into jail and stuff like that, it's definitely not a fun time. So as this nightmare collides and crashes onto him, and he knows he can't get out of it, my theory is possibly he found a way to get off Suicide Watch, and that's how he ended himself. Maybe paying, or I don't know, some way to get out of it, because I think he was a powerful person, and he knows powerful people, possibly got out of Suicide Watch just for that, and then committed suicide after that. Then we go to, it's not okay. Now that both Stipe and Aganu fought and won since their last fight, how do you see a second fight between them going? From a fan perspective, it seems Aganu only keeps getting better, while Stipe kind of has stayed the same now for a few years. But does the same old strategy work again, or have you seen improvements from Nganu, which would make the second fight go completely different? I understand this is a tough question because Nganu's last three fights have lasted a total of 2 minutes and 30 seconds, which is crazy. And look at the guys he's beaten. Curtis Blades, Cain Velasquez, JDS only lasted half a round. And there's a possibility. Imagine that. Nganu could have fought these three guys same night and beat all of them in 2 minutes and 30 seconds. That's how good Nganu is. People are going to give me stuff for this again. I do lean in Ghana winning. It's a similar reason why I leaned to him before. I understand Stipe beat him. And I understand Stipe might beat him again. And Ghana fought him very different. It's just objective. It's just true. Look at all of Ngannou's fights before he fought Stipe. And then look how he fought Stipe. Complete night and day approach. I mean, he was uber aggressive. And when guns blazing since the round started, he never does that. He's never done that. Never. Not one fight. Not Andrzej Arlovski. Not Elster Overeem. Not Curtis Blaze the first time, not Anthony Hamilton, nobody. He's never done that before. But then he does it against Stipe, and it was a very ill-advised tactic. I think if he fights the way he fought before, 
or if he fights the way he fought after, besides the Derek Lewis fight, if he fights the way he fought uh, Curtis Blades the second time, or Cain Velasquez, or even JDS, I think he could eventually catch Stipe, but here's the thing. I'm going to lean in Ganu because of that factor, and I know he has a good chance of beating Stipe, but that does not mean I'm writing off Stipe. People like to do that a lot of times with my predictions. They like to go like, when I pick a fighter, they always try to make it seem like I thought the other guy had no chance, which is most of the time not true. It's a prediction of probability. It's not a prediction of who I think 100% will win. You know, and it's never like that. Nobody has a 100% chance of winning a fight. So it's always down to probability. It's always down to percentages. I think Nganu is a higher percentage to beat Stipe. But Stipe definitely has paths to beat Nganu. Even the one he did before, I think could still be effective today. And to be honest, Nganu hasn't shown anything too different. People like to say he's better now, like mentally and stuff like that. Technically, stylistically attributes all that stuff he's the same guy it seems like uh maybe a little bit better timing maybe a little bit more experience maybe a little bit more comfortable you know the mental stuff seems to be growing for Nganu but the physical stuff seems to be not growing he I mean he knocked out JDS the same way he knocked out Andrei Olovsky it was the exact same combination exact same defense exact same counter almost exact same footing very close the way he beat Kim Velasquez is something he would do before he fought Stipe you know it's not like he's doing something different he's doing more light kicks which is a good thing like he blasted Curtis Blades he blasted JDS and those are gonna hurt Stipe so it's not like he's doing things differently than before completely kind of the same guy and still I think Agano would have a very good chance of beating Stipe then we go to yes what fighter from each division would have the most success if they went up a weight class? I think Davison Figueiredo would actually do very well at 135 pounds. He's a huge flyweight. I think Marlon Moraes would do pretty good at 145. I have to see about Darren Till. I don't really know. Because he's going to be an average 185er, I think. His chin would probably get better and he'll outstrike a lot of those guys. But there's a lot of good wrestlers and a lot of good grapplers up there. So, I don't know. I have to really see. I think Robert Whitaker would do very well at 205. And I would say my number one pick would probably be Yoel Romero. I think he would smash a lot of guys at 205. More Diaz versus Hori questions. I'm going to go down the list a little bit. Really quick by Rorick T. How do you think Joshua's chances are in the Ruiz Jr. rematch? I think very high. I think he will perform a lot better in this fight because he was doing very well until he started getting desperate for that knockout. You know, he saw the finish open. He saw his opportunity to finish Ruiz, but he didn't know how tough Ruiz was. We never really knew, right? We never really seen Ruiz get hurt like that. And Joshua went in for the kill. He got in close range. Didn't really keep a distance at all and got caught in the exchange. And that was the beginning of the end. I think in the rematch, he's going to know a little bit more. He's going to be a little bit more aware of what to do and what not to do. Keep that range and let Ruiz start leading the fight. I actually do favor Joshua in the rematch. we go down the list a little bit because there's a lot of Diaz and Jorge questions I already answered. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. I heard rumors about Till versus Gaslam matchup, and I personally think it's a bad idea for Till after two stoppage losses. Who do you think he should fight at middleweight first? Yeah, I do understand that this is going to be a very dangerous fight because Gaslam has some heat in that left hand of his, and he's extremely tough. He has a very good chin, and he's really good at entering on these long fighters. I mean, he entered on Chris Wyman very well, dropped him. He entered on Israel Adesanya and dropped him. I think entering on Till is going to be not too difficult. But I do understand why the UFC is probably going to do this matchup. It's because Gaslam was a 170-pounder. And it could do Till pretty well, but if Gaslam lands one left hand, it's over. It's all done. Unless Till's chin really rejuvenates, I guess you would say. Or it really gets better going up a weight class where he doesn't have to cut too much weight. Who I would like to see Till fight at 185 would probably be someone like... Maybe like someone like a Christoph Jocko or Brad Tavares. You know, someone lower in the rankings. I do understand Kevin Gaslam, but Kelvin's a number four ranked contender. And even if he beats Gaslam because of his distance management, not so much his distance, and that power in that left hand of his... I don't expect him to win the fight, but if he does pull it off, he's in a very bad state in this division. He's a top contender. Who's going to fight? Yuval Romero? Paulo Costa? Israel Adesanya? Jack Hermanson? Jack Array? Derek Brunson even? Robert Witter? Like, who is he going to fight? <laughs> it's going to be a very bad place for him because now he's unfavored in every single matchup he could possibly have. So I think they should grow him in this 185-pound division because... He's still like 25 years old. And he has to grow in this division. It's not just, I'm going to go up a division, I'm automatically going to be amazing. Look at Luke Rockhold, right? Rockhold gained a lot of weight to 205, and he looked a lot slower, right? And if you look at Max Holloway going up to 155, he was fast, but he was too small and too weak. 
right? You have to adapt to the weight class most of the time. And I think Darren Till, you know, fighting guys who are lower in the ranks, maybe outside the ranks, and then easing his way up the division, being so young, first fight at 185 in the UFC, that's a lot better of an approach. If you're going to thrust him at the top of the division, even if he wins one or two fights, he's going to get blasted in the next like three, four or five. He's not ready for that. So I think it's a disservice to Darren Till. Of course, he's going to take the fight. If they offer him Robert Whitaker off the bat, he would take it, right? If they offer him Yolo Romero, he would take it. He would get, he would get destroyed, but he's a fighter, you know? All right, last question. Jack Karen, rank the cardio. All right, so Colby, Tony, John Jones, Holloway, Kamar Usman, Nick Diaz, Nate Diaz, Cruz, Johnson, Carwin, and Huntraj. Thanks a lot, mate. Okay, so I'll go Ferguson, then Covington, then Holloway, then Johnson, then Andraj, then John Jones, then Nick Diaz, then Kamar Usman, then Dominic Cruz, then Nate Diaz, then Shane Carwin. <laughs> Why is he in there? All right, now let's go to Twitter. We're going to start with Genghis MM. How can I explain to a casual? Whitaker lost to Thompson. Thompson lost to Pettis. Pettis lost to Holloway. All KO, TKO. Holloway is better than Whitaker. Um, because that's MMA math. And how that doesn't work is styles make fights. There's probability in fights. No one has 100% winning. Different approaches, different X factors into every single fight, such as game plans, if the fighter is injured, mental state, all sort of stuff that we don't know about. That can impact the fight. And it all comes down to stylistic matchups and the era in which they fought. Whitaker fought Thompson when Whitaker was at a low weight class where he shouldn't be at, really drained for the fight, and very early in his career, where Thompson was coming up the ranks in his natural weight class, right? And Thompson got caught by Pettis, and Pettis went up a weight class. I believe that was his first 170-pound fight, right? Thompson doing very well, eventually just get caught, did something ill-advised in the fight, drastic error, costed him the fight. Pettis went down a weight class to 145, he was drained for the fight, lost to Holloway due to the volume. You know, there's a lot of different things, right, going into it, such as who was the best fighter out of Rampage Jackson, Rashad Evans, Leota Machida, they all beat one or another, so you can't really pick. It all comes to the style, X-Factors, era in which they fought the age, all sort of stuff. And Holloway, 145, or going up to 185, obviously won't beat a Whitaker, you know, so... And then we'll go to Dan Reme at Dan Remenhorn. What do you think about Carmouche basically saying she expected Valentina to be more aggressive? She said for some reason Shevchenko was more hesitant in the fight than her previous ones, which is opposite. No, Shevchenko is always the one moving backwards, always the one that are just waiting for the opponent. Carmouche expected Valentina to be aggressive against a wrestler uncharacteristically. She's a counterpuncher and she likes to make a Muay Thai style of a fight where they're kind of in the center of the cage going tap for tap with each other. And that's how she always fights. Always. I don't know what fight she saw that Valentina was aggressive in or trying to look for an opening. She doesn't fight like that. Even her stance doesn't allow her to do that. I think Carmouche didn't know who she was fighting at that night. I don't know. Bad game plan. Bad approach. Did not adapt to the fight at all when everything was going south. And she actually thought that she did pretty well. I don't know, man. She did nothing. It was up to her to do something because Valentina was doing what she always does. She's a counter striker. She doesn't lead fights. She's not going to lead a fight uncharacteristically and give the opponent some sort of advantage very similar to Anderson Silva back in the day when you led Anderson Silva knocked you out if you didn't lead now it's a boring fight because Anderson's not going to lead the fight but he's winning in a point fight now which is what Valentina did if you're not going to lead the fight now Valentina's going to beat you by point fighting it's a hard style to beat man so yeah I don't know what Carmouche was saying I think her coach just probably told her some stuff then we go to at lordfire2810 hey man it's me again I didn't see your first question a minute ago, I was thinking about something. Yoel Romero, even if he quote-unquote lost on Saturday, is probably the only fighter that I could see beating the four GOATs. My top four, at least. GSP, Jones, Silva, DC. Any predictions on any of these fights? That's crazy, right? Romero can actually possibly, in the right circumstances, fight GSP, Jones, Silva, and DC. And he does very well in all of those fights. That's why Yoel is one of the best fighters. I mean, I think he would destroy GSP. He's too big, wrestling's too good, too much power on the feet, too fast, counter-striking's too good, very unorthodox. GSP would have a hard time with that one. And GSP's jab is going to get taken away because of the southpaw, Romero. And the power shots will now be more in play, and that's where GSP is going to find his flaws. Against Jones, I would say Jones would win, but I think Romero's speed and unpredictability will give Jones a hard time. Light kicks will be there. Jones will probably take down Romero, but it's not going to be for long. I don't see anybody holding down Romero that long. And ultimately making this a standing fight, if it enters the clinch, that's where Jones will dominate. But from mid-range or close range, Romero gives Jones a hard time everywhere. Against Silva, I see Romero beating Silva. A prime Silva, even. I mean, the wrestling is too good. The power is all there. Unpredictability. It'd be a tough fight for Silva. And for DC, I will love to see this fight. This would be a very competitive one, I think. I think the wrestling will negate each other. I think they will even things out. It will stay on the feet. 
I actually do see Romero beating DC on the feet. So in that one, I actually go with Romero. So I would say Romero would beat GSP Silva on DC at 205 and would lose to Jones. Then we go to at Lil Peck 2020. Combat sports is messed up, bro. Think about it. We are watching people beat up each other to unconsciousness just for our entertainment. Also, hitting a down opponent or unconscious is barbaric. Do you think this glorification of violence is bad for our society? No, no. In theory, you could probably say that, but it's proven not to be true. Because for one, combat sports, it's not just entertainment. It's not just for us to watch. It also creates avenues for people to join gyms and stuff like that. And some people need that stuff. I mean, it's like a way to get away from reality. If they're in a very tough place in life, it creates paths for their future that they didn't have before. And it can probably uh, handle some people's some people's troubles, maybe anger and stuff like that. And you see that a lot when you go to hardcore gyms, like maybe even boxing gyms, stuff like that. And that's another thing. Boxing's been around for such a long time, and that's always been violent, you know, very violent. There's people who fought on TV and died later that night, and it still really didn't cause much negativity in terms of, like, glorifying violence for society or something like that. And it's just entertainment at the end of the day where people aren't watching to say, oh, now I'm going to fight someone. You know, that normally doesn't happen. You'll see that at the events, but usually afterward, it's like a release, you know what I'm saying? When people go to the fights or people watch them on TV or something like that, it doesn't provoke violence you know it doesn't provoke people to start being violent if anything it provokes them to actually get into the gym and get into martial arts and actually has the opposite effect at least that's what i see whenever i see people who watch mma all the time they don't want to go outside and start beating up people on the streets they want to go to an actual gym i never hear people want to go fight people on the streets after never i never hear that because for most people like casual fans it's a release it's entertainment it's just something to watch it's a spectacle this is a very similar thing to people who made the arguments about video games being bad for society or movies or comic books or radio back in the like no this doesn't really have much impact on violence in society it really doesn't stats show that this doesn't happen research in general just shows that entertainment no matter what the form just doesn't impact society in that kind of manner because people don't really take it too seriously i mean you got casual fans you got hardcore fans the casual fans don't take it too seriously they watch one fight and that's it they watch a conor mcgregor fight nate diaz fight ronda rousey john jones and that's it they're done they don't think about it the next day at all and then you look at the hardcore fans those are the people that actually get into the gyms they don't think about fighting in the streets they think about oh i'm gonna get into martial arts i want to be like that you know they understand the difference. But the sport is violent. To call it not violent is just to delude yourself. There's people punching each other in the face. There's people getting people in arm bars. People trying to choke each other out. That is the sense of violence, right? But that is the athlete that is being violent. The audience don't see what the athletes see or they don't understand what the athletes are thinking at there, especially casual fans. The hardcore fans understand differences between violence and art and violence and what these guys are doing in there. They know how to separate the glorification of violence, right? The casual fans don't even understand the violence is even taking place many times, right? They just see the spectacle. They see the the storylines, they see the characters. It's like a movie to them in real life. I mean, they're watching these big time fights that have a story coming into them almost all the time, right? Even Brock Lesnar, when he came into the sport, did he have much of a storyline against many of the fighters in the UFC? No, he didn't have too much connection with them, but he was this big hulking character that came from a different organization. And that in itself is a storyline. And people came from WWE, people came from pro wrestling, they came to watch that by the pay-per-view. That's why probably you saw many pay-per-view buys for Brock Lesnar. They really understood his story. And they want to see how he will compete in another organization. That's a story in itself, right? Or even Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz, the second biggest fight of all time, had a big storyline coming to the rematch. Even the first fight, right? Conor has an amazing story about him that people followed over and over again. This is the casual fans that I'm speaking about. And Habib and Conor was probably the biggest story in MMA history, right? The beef that they had with each other, the things said to each other, the press conferences, they all grabbed the casual fans and pulled them into this fight. They're not really understanding what the fighters are seeing out there. Even when you talk to them, they just don't understand it at that level. They just understand the storyline, the fighting styles a little bit, but they just want to see how the spectacle plays out. They want to see how this movie ends. That's pretty much what it is. And that in itself is not glorifying violence glorifying is to praise or show admire to right they're not admiring the actual violent nature of the sport they're admiring other things about the sport that are just as important right the sport of mma is an art with a violent canvas right the canvas sometimes can't be seen to the eye when the paint is already covering it the paint is the art the canvas under that you don't normally see is the violent nature 
And that's how casual fans see the sport. And then we go to at Tarek underscore CFC. What do you think about the UFC 242 card? In my opinion, it is one of the worst cards of the year, really? And one fight that could have made it better, which is Cerrone versus Gaethje as the co-main event. It'll be my first time to attend a UFC event. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much, man. So is that the Habib versus Poirier card? Yeah, it is. So you got Habib versus Poirier as the main event, which is amazing. You got Barbosa versus Felder. That's a fun fight. You got Makashev versus Davy Hamels. I like Islam Makashev. Um, Davy Hamels can bring an exciting fight. So it, there's a level of danger for Islam Makashev. But I do believe Makashev should be fighting some ranked opponents. So I can understand your criticism on that one. Curtis Blades versus Shamil Abdurahimov. That's a very bad fight for Shamil. Um, I don't really like that fight too much. Mirbek Tysonov versus Carlos Diego Ferreira. <sighs> yeah, I think they're building that one for the Russian to win. And then we go to Joanne Calderwood versus Andrew Ali. That's a good fight. Probably not going to knock your hat back, but... Um, the rest of the fights, I don't know some of these guys. Atman Azaitar, I've actually heard of his name. Undefeated. Takashi Sato's a good fighter. Bilal Muhammad's on there. Nordin Taleb versus Muslim Salikov. Amari Akhmedov versus Zach Cummings. Yeah, it's not the greatest fight, but you could tell it's to cater to the Russian fans as well as they do have Bilal Muhammad. And I think Nordin Taleb are from the Middle East, I think. I'm pretty sure Muhammad is. I don't know if Taleb is actually from there, but... I think he has that heritage, right? Yeah, not the strongest card. I'm not going to complain too much. That main event is... That can sell it itself. And then last one by at John Ath 608-40289. How as a southpaw should I defend right overhands in MMA context? But boxing tactics. Sorry, I meant four questions, by the way. I mean, there's a lot of ways, right? So you're in opposite stances. You could just block it with your with your left hand and counter with an inside jab. That's one of the safest, but it's an MMA, so they can get around the gloves. Keep a high guard, high tight guard instead of your traditional boxing guard. You could also duck and go for a takedown for a single leg. You could weave and then land a counter left over the top. You could duck and for a left straight to the body, L step to their left side. So you have a profile view of them and start landing combinations through that. And then maybe follow them down. This is actually what I like to do the most. It could be a bit risky, but if you're looking for that counter shot blow to knock them back or knock them out, you can land a left straight down the center, but you have to keep your chin down and you have to pick your shoulder up when you're throwing that punch, man, because it can get right over your guard, right? So if you come in and maybe a step off to the right so you can move your head a little bit away from the right overhand, get your foot on the outside and land that straight left down the center. Remember, straight punches do be looping punches most of the time. This is also something I like to do a lot. You can get in on them first, block or decrease the impact completely and step off in case they don't get knocked out. So you're taking the outside foot and now you can create an angle and follow through. So those are some good ways to counter the right overhand for a southpaw. So that's the end of the podcast, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. And if you did, make sure to give it a like. Make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel. And again, thank you guys so much for watching. And I'll see you in the next episode.